Today we have Natalie DeVos Burchart on the show. Are you looking for some real estate investing advice? Natalie is a multifamily investor with over 4,000 units under her belt. In this episode, she dishes out some great advice on how to get started in the industry, which is definitely a people business. You will learn that success in multifamily comes down to the currency of trust. She also talks about grit and determination and that time is your most valuable asset. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Natalie before we start the show. Natalie lives in the DFW area. She comes from a chemical engineering background, but is now a full-time real estate investor with over 4,000 units. She advises others to get out there and network and let people know who you are and how you can add value. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Natalie DeVos Burchart with us. Natalie, appreciate you coming on the show. Darren, thank you for having me. And thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly. I know it's not that easy. It's not that easy, but I have a long one too. And and I did practice a few times before we hit record. So um, I'm glad I got it right. So, hey, just a little bit on how Natalie and I know each other. Um, we are both part of the same mentorship group, the Brad Sumrock Group in Dallas. And um, we actually went after two deals together um, and just fell short on both of them. I think we, one of them we came in probably third and the other one we, we came in second. Um, so, but in multifamily, if you come in second, it's like coming in last. It doesn't matter. There's only one winner. Um, but I really enjoyed working with her and, and, and really wish that we had gotten one of those deals, um, taken down together. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. So um, thanks for coming on. And to start with, can you just share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Sure. Um, so I'm both a GP or general sponsor, um, syndicator and a passive investor. So in terms of unit count, it's been well over 4,000 uh, and about uh, a little less than half than that, um, 13, 1,400 of them. Uh, have been um, sponsor uh, GPs deals that I've done uh, across nine uh, nine deals over five six years now. Fantastic! So when I joined the group, Natalie was already a veteran. <laughs> um, she was already getting going, and and um, you know I remember the day, and I don't know if you remember the day, but I remember the day we met. It was at a it was like the night before a weekend marketing event 
and it was a happy hour and, you know, we're, we're just introducing ourselves and I'm like, you know, what's your background? And you floored me like your with your background. So share with the listeners your, your background, because I thought it was so interesting. So the, the exciting thing with apartments, multifamilies, you get to interact with people that have a wide variety of backgrounds. Mine actually happens to align pretty well with, with the space. Um, I don't want to go back too far, but, uh, I am a chemical engineer with an MBA, uh, started my career at Exxon Mobil in uh, DC, Fairfax, Virginia, uh, on a trading floor, not that Exxon Mobil trades, but it was, uh, trading floor with, uh, with traders. And one of them and I, uh, left Exxon Mobil together in 2016 to start a refined products commodity trading company. And, uh, so I basically was in a startup, uh, for most of my, uh, my working career building that, uh, that trading company from the ground up. It was just two of us for the first, uh, first couple years. Uh, and, uh, we built that up up, up, um, you know, hiring, um, acquiring, et cetera, uh, to at the time it was over 5 billion in revenue. Now it's even, even higher, but I've exited, uh, yeah, five, five with a B. Uh, That's so crazy. imagine, imagine the, the churn on the, on the funds with that, uh, you know, five day payment terms, all large players, Shell, BP, Valero. And we were the the little guys, uh, two people, two computers, two phones, so, but they, <laughs> but they trusted us. So that's, that speaks to, uh, something that's true in most businesses, all about relationships and your reputation and, uh, under promising over, over delivering. Cause you don't get the business and get the repeat business with customers unless you, you serve them and you put them first. Uh, so that was, that was a lesson I took the heart to heart day one with, with that company. And, and it's, applicable in so many other areas. Uh, but long, long story short, my last couple years, uh, at that company, it's called Bioorgia. It's in Houston. Uh, my last couple years were all in M and a where we were trying to normalize our financials. Cause with trading, you can make your year in a month. Uh, and this is just so, you know, it's not like trading a screen. It's, it's physical trading of, of commodities, but you can make your month. And then literally the best thing your whole company can do is just sit on their hands the rest of the year <laughs> if, uh, if there aren't opportunities. And um, that doesn't look well for, for bank lines. And at that point in time, we had a, uh, a syndicated bank line of, oh, it was well over 150 million. And we were, we were looking to even like double it. So um, with those lines and, and banks, we needed to have normalized financials, which means we needed to have regular cash flow. Uh, and that sounds familiar because that's what apartments provide. But what I was looking at was the apartment equivalent uh, in the uh, the oil and gas industry. So looking at storage facilities, uh, valuing them, doing due diligence on them, uh, pipelines, uh, even production facilities, whether it was ethanol plants, uh, refineries, uh, did due diligence on a refinery in, in Hawaii that Chevron was selling. So complicated um, models. Um, when you talk about, you know, forward curves of crude oil coming in from, from Asia into Hawaii and a whole logistics and distribution system anyway. So I was evaluating those types of assets for acquisition uh, and on the road a lot. And in the meantime, also had a, uh, uh, a son and um, decided to, uh, uh, to take it easy and 
step down to evaluating apartments instead of um, those types of assets. But uh, that's my background, um, M&A and um, startup physical commodity trading business, which at the, at the heart of it is a risk management business. Uh, and I think that's particularly pertinent in the um, climate we're in right now with interest rate changes, cap rate compression and uh, or expansion depending on the assets so yeah so listeners do you understand what i'm saying when i was blown away the first time that i talked to her like this girl is smart holy cow she, and and you know when you read books and you're you're told to like hang out with people that are smarter than you like i was like i want to partner with you like you you have it down so um, she comes from a very strong risk management background. Um, also, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, you know, um, starting your own company. Um, I don't know the petroleum business that well, but I, I have my own, I guess, perceptions that it's male oriented and maybe I'm wrong there, but you come in and all of a sudden you, you, you know, you fire up this business and, and so it was, it was better over the phone than in person right. because um, I, for some reason people maybe thought I was older <laughs> when they, they spoke to me over the phone, but yes, very, very, very male oriented. Uh, a lot of, um, again, similarities with, uh, yeah. When the apartments, uh, when you first got in apartments, it was, it was really uh, male oriented. There's more women in it now that, you know, than there were four or five years ago. Um, but you had to kind of break through that as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm lucky that I got that getting out of your comfort zone and taking risk um, out of my system early on. And I think that's the best time to do it. So my advice for anybody that's um, that's young, fresh out of school, maybe hasn't you know settled down family, that now's the time to take risks. You've got such a long runway. Um, your, your appetite and ability and, and capacity is never going to be higher than it is right now. I love that. And, and I, I totally think that there's so many people out there, look, whether it's, we're going to be talking about multifamily real estate mainly on the show, but um, you know, whether it's starting your own business or, you know, going and trying something new or even just moving locations, like take the chance, you know, I mean, you only live one life once and the, the successful people that I've interviewed, you know, they, they took some chances and, and some, sometimes they work out the first time. Sometimes they don't work out and they pivot and they have to find some another angle. And then that angle works out, but they never would have gotten there had they not taken that first step. So I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it, and you hear it that they're the, um, the gold is in, in those lessons and those, those failures, uh, and that, that's where the growth happens. Um, and uh, I'm a better manager, apartment person for the bad deals that I've been a part of, right? Uh, and I've I've hated them. <laughs> I've worked through them. Right. And then you're just uh, like, oh. All right. Well, the, you, you brought it up. So let's talk about that. So what, what are some of the learning lessons that you've learned in the apartment world? So You brought it up. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I, I, uh, that's fine. Um, so... It's, uh, I was talking about, you know, those relationships, people, um, and, you know, Darren and I were like, yep, we want to do a deal together. It's not like Darren and I just met and, um, and decided the next day that we were going to, to do a deal. So um, a big, big lesson is, is, is pick who you do business with. 
uh, and take your time uh, picking them uh, because it's hard to unwind on a long transaction, uh, five, potentially six year hold. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to, um, to undo and life is too short um, for, for a bad partnership. Uh, and that goes for your passive investors too. You might have um, some passive investors that you don't want um, on your deals, uh, but what's more applicable in, in the co-sponsorship realm, which is everybody's doing bigger and bigger deals, they start cobbling together a team uh, and you don't want to have this, you know, seven-headed serpent where you don't know who's doing doing what and um, different working styles or, or one particular person steamrolling um, the, the rest of the team. Or um, what I have to watch out is that a lot of things come onto my plate and don't leave it because I'm like, well, you know how to do it. You have the experience. So it just defaults to Natalie, defaults to Natalie. And you're like, wait, aren't you supposed to be building your experience, taking, taking off some of the slow. So it's managing those, those conversations. So the people, people side of it, take your time with it. Uh, and that's the most important part of the business is uh, getting to know people and letting people uh, get to know you. Uh, and otherwise, um, I've most of my challenges have been with smaller deals and I've, I've been on panels and, and conferences and things like that and taken a pretty, pretty hard, you know, stance on, uh, on not going too small because I've, I've paid the price of, um, of my time, uh, because of the, the poor return on time, uh, going into a smaller deal and then struggling with staff, uh, struggling with, um, yeah, you, you, I mean, when you don't have staff, then the whole thing, um, starts falling apart, uh, but working through um, staffing challenges that then led to occupancy challenges. And um, it happens to be like the, my hardest deal was my individual deal where it was just my money. Oh, really? So you, I think you, you um, are willing to take more risks or push, push through things more when it's, when it's yours or maybe do, do things a little differently because you don't have um, investors to respond to. And uh, I would argue that I manage a deal better if I'm doing it for other people than I am for myself. Uh, but, uh, but pushing through those challenges and learning, okay, what do we do in a, in this case, it's a smaller market, uh, with, with occupancy challenges and, uh, older asset. That was the other aspect. Um, so you, you learn, you learn, um, what it, what it takes, um, uh, building a team in that market uh, and uh, and push through it because uh, the the worst thing you can do is is throw your hands up in the air um, because your first deal might be your last deal in that case. So it it does take uh, an amount of uh, of grit and uh, sticking with it and determination. Uh, and I I know folks that have bought deal a deal in the last year uh, that are getting a little little discouraged or or frustrated uh, and. Um, my, my advice on that is, is stay the course. And, uh, the only way is, is through it. That's awesome. So you said so many great things there. Um, so first on the people side, yeah, you know, in, in terms of Natalie and myself, we met for many, many times before we even tried to go after a deal together, you know? And, um, so that, you know, it shows that you have to get out there and meet people and people need to get to know you. Um, I've had people reach out to me on Instagram and they're like, you want to partner on this deal? I'm like, I don't even know you. Like, you know, um, 
you know, next time you're in Dallas, let's get together and, you know, let's start to form that relationship. But people that I've done business with, I've known for years, you know? Um, so the other thing is I've based on past interviews with people that have, you know, lot, thousands of units, the deals that have gone bad. So there's two types of discussions with business partners. One is the roles you're going to play. You kind of talk to that, like, okay, what role are you going to play? What role am I going to play? What duties are you going to do? What duties are you? So having that conversation up front is key so that everybody knows what, what's going to happen after the deal closes. But the one area where people have told me, you know what, this, when I had a bad partner, it was because we didn't agree on how we saw the world. Our moral compass was different. And, you know, that is where people can get in a really bad bind. Um, I had one guy say, yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, we had a, a deal where um, I ended up refunding, every, every, you know, we had to back out of the deal before it closed and I gave all the investors the money back. You know, had I been partnered with somebody else that didn't have the same moral compass as me, the agreement didn't require him to do that, right? It could have been a loss across all the investors, but he's like, that's the right thing to do. And yeah, you, you do, you do what's right for the long term. You're not playing a, a short term game. I'm not a, I'm not a golfer, but I think you are right. Yes. I am. Um, so, so you're, you're doing, you're doing, it's, it's a whole, whatever. it's, it's not nine holes. It's 18. You're doing the whole, um, long-term thing and you have to think, uh, think long-term and, uh, what preserves those relationships is, uh, communication. It's easy to communicate good news. What really, um, seals, seals the, the relationship and the rapport is communicating through the bad stuff, the challenges and, that's and, tough. and being I, transparent. It, and I, I, I don't know tough. if it's human, human nature, right. but people love to go, Oh, I'm hiding. Oh, I'm go I'm just gonna, you know, not, not talk about it. Or now instead of a monthly report, we'll just do a quarterly one. And, and we're not gonna, you know, we're gonna avoid talking to investors. That's not the way to, um, to handle it. So how, what is the way to handle it? Like you said, transparency, putting, putting your, your customers first, you know, that, that, uh, business 101 lesson. So, you know, and I'll, I'll use a apartment example and maybe a, a non one, but a non, non apartment example is there was a hurricane, uh, in, uh, in the Gulf and there was a supply disruption and we had a uh, an agreement to perform supplying ethanol that goes into gasoline uh, to Texas, and we trucked it from Oklahoma. We lost money on the logistics, but we delivered and performed on the on a contract when nobody else um, was uh, was performing. And that one action of of staying true to an agreement, in spite of what in the industry is a force majeure. It's a weather event. It is a legitimate um, supply disruption that you can contractually back out of, but saying, no, I'm going to go above and beyond and do what my customer needs because if they don't get the ethanol, they can't sell the gasoline, cars can't be on there, et cetera. Uh, and, um, and, and performing that, that reaped, you know, so much more business on the, on the back end. it was worth that, that upfront cost. It wasn't done in a calculated way, but that, that was the result. 
And on the apartment side, um, uh, alignment is huge with your with your partners, uh, and you you've got to kind of vet out. And it's and it's hard when you're new, but you got to kind of vet out that you know that you're on the on the same page. Uh, a big uh, area that that people might not see eye to eye is is the uh, sponsorship compensation structure, uh, whether it's on the front end, the back end and how it's, how it's split. Uh, but the worst thing you can do is have that conversation, uh, when the cake is baked and you're already, um, raising capital and, and too far down the line, uh, because, uh, because then it's, it's hard to back out. And I like a compensation structure that, um, that is aligned with the, with the investors, uh, putting in at least 10% of the capital capital raise and uh, being compensated more on the back end. So the track record of um, pretty much every single deal I've done has actually not even had a, an acquisition fee on the on the front end, which is a typical uh, nowadays. Mo- most folks, even you know, first time syndicators, are doing acquisition fees. And I mean, I have I have mixed feelings ab- about those. Um, Personally, I, I don't. I don't know that it's necessary to handicap a deal uh, going into it uh, if if it's a it's a tight market and um, and you you know you don't know how things are going to unfold uh, to already have that that money off the table. Uh, and I don't want to get in a whole <laughs> I know, I get you know, acquisition fee discussion. Right. Uh, but a, another another element is uh, if a deal is not performing, do you? Um, and it, it's right out of the gate. Do you uh, assess your asset management fees, or do you hold off on them? And um, I've always been in teams where the policy is: if we're not performing, we're gonna we're gonna hold off. I mean, they can accrue uh, on the asset, but we're not going to draw that cash out of the out of the deal if it's needed. You do what's right um, for the deal. Um, same thing if if the um, the deal is is short on. Um, on capital, do you do a, a capital, you know, uh, call or, or basically um, have investors put in more money, or do you lend it to the deal? Uh, and I have loaned money to to deals to to bridge that uh, that gap because that's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's that's huge. You know, I think that you know a lot of what you were talking about, you know, doing the right thing, handling the problems, communicating you know, difficult situations, um, that could be applicable to any business. You know, I, I, I was in other industries and I remember, you know, to your point, I, I remember having a customer that hadn't done business with them at first, but they had an issue and it took me quite a bit of time to work through that issue internally and get it resolved. But that person was so thankful. That company was so thankful that they you know, and I didn't do it because, you know, I got a ton of business afterwards, but I did, you know, and I think that whether, you know, doing the right thing and having that mentality, playing the long game is just a smart, smart approach. Um, and I, I, I'm just going to yeah. interject one thing. Um, I think a lot of um, folks enter the, the industry thinking it's going to be, um, you know, this easier. They basically, they don't go into it with a business mindset. It helps if you've run a, a profit and loss of PNL for a division in the past, or you've, uh, you've ran a small business because that's what it is. You're buying a, a, uh, an ongoing concern, a, a business that's, that's running. Uh, and then your, your, 
um, added value is how you're going to run it better. Absolutely. And, and I look at the, you know, the investor portion, you know, as a way to serve, you know, um, you even talked about it, like between your deals that you have investors and the ones that you don't like you, you know, you're paying attention to serving those investors and, you know, trying to maximize returns for them and, you know, and monitor their, their capital so that they, um, they're doing, you're doing right by them and growing their wealth. I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic place to be as a syndicator that one, you have an opportunity to grow your wealth, but you have the opportunity to help grow the wealth of so many other people too, which is, which is phenomenal. Where I was going with it before was uh, markets. I know that you've been in, you know, different markets. Some of them are hot growth markets like in Texas. Some of them are not in, you know, hot growth markets. So maybe talk about, you know, the differences between being in a growth market versus a non-growth market. Well, the non-growth cash flows beautifully, <laughs> but you might, you, you might not get a pop at the end, but you know, for example, our uh, tenant and common deal that that's, that's listed 120 units. That one's in West Memphis, Arkansas. That's um, high crime. It's a newer asset. Um, it's been cash flowing beautifully and we're about to you know, it's, it's listed for about twice what we paid for it in, uh, in three years. So we got, we got the, uh, uh, the best of both. Um, although I wasn't expecting the, the pop on the back end, but that was a, a market gift more than anything else. Uh, and then these, these scorching, I mean, I don't, I haven't touched Austin. Austin is really exciting and interesting. Same as, same as Phoenix. Um, but so hard to, uh, uh, to get into, uh, and demands perfection, but uh, the hotter markets like DFW and and, and others, you, you you'd be you're going to be lucky to to eke out that uh, that cash flow anymore um, these days, and uh, and it's all in um, speeding up that business plan as fast as you can and uh, and getting it uh, either refied or sold. Uh, so it, it's. The, the market's not, the market, it's, it wasn't forgiving before. I feel like it's even less so uh, now. You, you need to know what you're doing or be around people that know what they're doing. Well, it was forgiving up to this point, right? I mean, in terms of having cap rate compression help, help valuations. Um, but, hey, talk about, um, you know, most deals that I see, you've been in a lot of more deals than I have, but most deals that I see have, Combo cash on cash of six to eight percent projected, and then double your money in you know three to five years. But the reality, I'm in a lot of deals, and the reality is that the cash flow isn't always there, right? Some deals the cash flow is there, and some deals it's not. And then the you know the back end pop and you know you may end up getting a back end pop to. Uh, make up for that. But talk about, I guess, differences between initial projections and reality. 
there's an advantage to a portfolio approach because if you've got a whole bunch of deals that are a certain um, asset class and in a given market, then you know you've you've got a bunch of apples and you're missing some oranges and some bananas. Um, so so that that's one thing. Being in a lot of deals, that would that was kind of the idea: um, diversification uh, across geographies and um, uh, uh, unit the size and um, and class um, so that there would be a, um, a distribution on the, uh, on the returns. And that, that helps, I guess, normal, normalize it around the, um, the rate of return that you, that you typically expect. So uh, in aggregate or taken all together, I haven't experienced that overall um, drop in, in cash flow because some have offset, uh, offset the others. Um, but, um, but that drop is there in those primary markets. Right. Um, I mean, DF, DFW, Houston. Yeah. So another thing that I want to get your take on is I've had this experience where I've had people come to me and say, hey, Darren, tell me who the good syndicators are and the, and the bad syndicators. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. You know, um, that's just my philosophy. But part of it, too, is. Look, I've had some deals. They don't all go in a straight line. You know, you. I've had some deals where all of a sudden the deal closes and occupancy drops. And I'm like, holy cow, what's going on with this deal? Like, you know, and, it, and maybe it lasts for three or four months. And, and I'm kind of just watching from the sidelines, but I'm like, man, that's probably one of my worst deals. And then all of a sudden a year later, it's back up in the mid-90s and it's in a great Submarket, and I'm like, I see other deals that are coming to market in that area, and I see the per unit price. I'm like, holy cow, that's probably one of my best deals now. Like, so it's hard to, had I told somebody, like, this syndicator, you know, isn't my best, this deal is my, you know, my dog, that's all they would remember. And you could have a good syndicator and a bad property and, um, you know, great property and a bad, bad syndicator and any combination on that, on that spectrum. Uh, but the, what distinguishes, um, you know, the, not that you're, not that you or me are, are gatekeepers of, you know, who's, who gets the green light, who gets the red light, uh, but it's that communication piece. So you want to kind of triangulate around uh, a syndicator you're looking to invest with and talk to folks that have invested with them uh, and not necessarily about the performance of the deal, um, but the the communication, the trajectory, how much the they're involved in uh, in in correcting you know the course if if there's if there's issues. Uh, because the bad syndicators are the ones that just let the management company run the ship. The management company is not going to um, to do it all for you. You you have to be um, setting the direction, setting the uh, uh, the goals and the targets, and then um, holding them accountable and and pivoting if need be. I mean, they, they, it's a dynamic dynamic market. Uh, you leave a lot of money on the table if you're not uh, keeping up with um, what comp properties are, are doing and things like that. Um, yeah, that, that's huge. And that, and that plays to network also, right? Because if you're a, a syndicator that doesn't have relationships with other syndicators, well, you're just kind of learning it on your own. But if you have a network of other syndicators and all of a sudden you run into an issue and you're like, oh, I remember this story, such and such, 
had a similar issue and you just get on the phone and call that syndicator, they're like, oh, this is how I handled it. And boom, like you, you might end up in a matter of a five minute phone call, you know, have a strategy on how to handle that situation versus having to learn everything on your own. Something, not that I almost did it, but on my, on my smaller individual deal because of the challenges and everything else, I was like, okay, the only one that can do it right is going to be me. So I'm just going to take it all over. I'm going to do, do my own property management company for a 50 unit deal. Don't do that. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. Don't, but, um, don't do but, that. But, but that, but that's, that's one of those phone calls and pieces of advice when, when you're in these, like when all, all seems like you know, there's no solution. And the only solution is you, um, your time is your most valuable asset. And when you start downgrading it, um, in terms of doing, um, tasks or, or, um, unless, unless you, you truly have a business case of a thousand units in a, in a, uh, a primary market where you can start truly hiring a whole team, uh, don't, don't downgrade, what you're spending your, your time on, uh, and the highest and best use for your time in the space, uh, is people time face to face. Uh, you know, it takes about seven to 10 zoom calls for, um, the equivalent of a lunch or an in-person, uh, meeting. So, you know, we're not in post COVID world, but, uh, and it's taken me a little bit to get back out there, but you, you need to, um, have those, those in-person interactions and, and relationships, uh, in order to be able to draw on that network and net worth, I know it's it's a cliche that your your net worth is your network, but but it really is applicable because um, that tribal knowledge and uh, and those connections are also you know brokers that could have deals for you, sellers that could be listing a deal that you could get a first or last look on potential investors, potential co-sponsors. There's so many different angles uh, in all of these interactions. Um, as long as you're selective in terms of the, um, the pool of people uh, you, you seek out, the, the number of, um, of events that, that attract folks that, that are active in the space are enough to fill your calendar. I don't want to say quite full time, but uh, you, could, you could be on the road and, and pretty much do um, you know, doing that. And it's worth doing. Uh, it's worth taking the time, uh, and, uh, and going to all these different conferences. And I don't advocate, you know, say, okay, one over the other, because it's not so much who's putting on the, uh, the event as it is talking to the people that are at the event. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, it's weird because like there is something different being in front of somebody and, than having a Zoom call or a phone call. And, and, and you just, I don't know, you just get a better connection. You get a better feel for that person, whether you want to work with them or not. Um, so conferences and networking, I think that some people think that, hey, if I'm paying for this conference or I'm paying for this, like they better tell me, you know, something really, really special but what you're saying, I think, is so true, and 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 I think people overlook that. Is you might go to the conference and you might learn, yes, you might learn something, but you might sit next to somebody that you partner with for the next five, ten years. Yeah, you know? I, I think that's that's the value of the conference that they've attracted and pulled together 
folks that you want to be talking to and you want to be building a relationship with. So um, you've got to, you know, not have a meal alone, have breakfast with, with one group of people, have, have lunch with the next, dinner, drinks. I mean, just, just keep it going because I think, and again, human nature, you, you pick up on some things over Zoom, but it's two-dimensional. And, and the, um, the currency is trust. You're building trust. And it's, and it's not cheap, it's earned, and you've got to, um, to build that. And there's so many things that you pick up on that are, that are, that you don't even realize, I think, uh, when you're, when you're in person, that's at least how I work. Um, so it takes, I have to like work at remembering the things that I talked about on a zoom call, uh, versus an in-person when just, it just sticks better. Uh, when, yeah, I mean, I could, I could picture, I could picture like where we were standing when we first met, like, and we had our first conversation, I could picture it in my head. It's, it's funny. Hey, talk about, um, first of all, you said a small deal. And then later on you say 50 units, like there's some, and for you now, 50 units is, is small, right? But for a lot of people, when they're first getting in, they small, they think of, you know, single family or duplexes, fourplexes, 50 units seems like it's out of their league. Um, but talk about, you know, why did you do individual deals after you started doing larger syndications? So I had 30 single family, um, rental properties that I self-managed before I got into apartments. Um, and I was working and I was uh, expecting our son. So a lot, lot on the plate, but, uh, the, to answer your question, the, um, the reason I did it, um, was concentration of, of capital. I wanted to have, um, you know, a, a level of control and, and, um, a longer term hold. So something, it, it was, it was basically a business plan that didn't present itself, um, that, that I felt wasn't uh, aligned with syndication where you, it, I don't call it a flip, but where you have a four to five year uh, business plan. I, I was looking to defer, um, defer, you know, taxes too. And, uh, uh, I had a, uh, a windfall in that particular year from, uh, from an income perspective. So it was about, um, redeploying that. And, uh, the most efficient way to do it was, um, was a deal that, you know, I controlled and, and, um, so I went ahead and did that. So, and then I did it again in a tick. So, yeah. So if, if you end up having a large inflow of capital from your perspective, a better avenue of trying to redeploy that in an efficient manner and a timely manner is either buying your own deal or partnering with a few, a couple other people and doing a, a tenant in common and tick. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't prioritize that over, um, you know, a syndication. It's, it's when you've got, when you're on a timeline. Uh, in other words, when it's, when it's something that has to be done by the end of the year. And it, because a lot of the, um, the deals that you might pursue as a, uh, as a syndicator or a GP, um, things get, get delayed. You've, you've got a lot of moving, moving parts, uh, and you move, you move fast alone, but you move further as a, as a team. And that, that does, that is true. But when there's a, uh, a speed component to the equation, uh, it, it helps to, um, to take out some of the, um, the noise, um, in terms of your overall return, 
uh, on time and, and financial return, uh, you're probably better off syndicating a deal. So I'm I'm not going to um, to say hey a, a tick is uh, I mean it it's a, it's a completely different different um, different perspective. So I I would rather hold for the long term. Uh, I still have ten out of those thirty single families, uh, and uh, and it's hard to let them go when literally they they keep go, going up in value every year. <laughs> So, right. Everybody said like, sell all your single family sell, and go into multifamily. And the, and the ones that held on, they're like, you know what? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, it, anyway. Um, so, so, so for, for me, it had more to do with the, with the business plan on those deals and, and a longer, uh, longer term um, hold. So talk about kind of, I'm, I'm switching gears on you a little bit, but you know, you're a businesswoman, you're a, you know, go-getter and talk about your childhood. Like how did that come about? What, does anything come back to your childhood? Did you know that you were going to be this successful? No, no. Um, so I, I talk too much apparently in school, which, which is funny because really? I am an, in, because I am an introvert, but apparently in, in grade school, I was written up constantly for, for talking too much. Um, Let's see. Um, I, I think I had, I had challenges and, um, that that's part of, you know, how I, um, turned, uh, inward, um, things that stick out that, um, that I think I should do also as a, uh, as a parent. Now we have a three and a six year old. Um, my father set up, uh, piggy banks for us when we were kids. We barely learned it right, but we had to keep a paper accounting ledger, um, like the old accounting where you, everything that you put in, you deposit the $2, well, it was Swiss francs, but uh, you deposit your francs in there. And then if you take any out, you put it, so, so, you know, you see it accumulating and, and you see that, that balance. And I remember, you know, I had 60 Swiss francs. I'm like, I'm rich. I can like, take over the world. And, but, but you have that sense of, you know, that innate sense of, you know, the money coming in and out and have a feeling for it. And you don't realize how important that is in, in everyday life you know, budgeting, you know, uh, running businesses. Um, so that seed was planted early and that understanding is, is there and part of, part of my, I guess, DNA to the point where, you know, going to college, I was like, okay, this, this is freaking expensive. Cause I went to a private university in, in, uh, in the States, uh, compared to free public, you know, you know, polytechnical school in, in Switzerland. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Switzerland, um, for a year, save a year of tuition, uh, and take ownership of my, um, uh, my education and, and pay back my, uh, my family because it's not, it's not theirs. It's mine. It's, and, and you, and you, if it's, you, you if it's yours, you, you own it and you own it the whole way. So, so I think that that sense of responsibility and developing that. And I don't know how it developed over time, but I think, um, that's another important component because you, you also take responsibility for the things that are going wrong in the deal and, and, and everything else. Uh, and that's what investors are looking for. Wow. Um, did that just happen? Because like, look, I, I know, I know a lot of kids these days, like they get a lot of stuff and they expect a lot of stuff and there's, this kind of entitlement feeling versus 
responsibility and, you know, taking ownership. Um, so that that's fantastic. And also that, you know, that piggy bank thing, look, spend, spend less than you make, you know, spend, and that, that works in every business, right? I mean, that's how you become profitable. And, uh, you know, and, and, and also early on when you talked about, you know, taking risk, look, at that stage, you need to spend less than you make. You need to put squirrel away some money so you can take a chance, right? If you are, every time you get a raise, you're buying the nicer car, the nicer house, the nicer whatever, like then you're going to be in bondage to, you know, that debt to, you know, buying stuff. And, instead and, the, of, and those things are so, so temporary, uh, right. you know, and, and they're nice. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, you don't want to enjoy life, but, um, I, uh, we've, we've pivoted to being more, uh, about experiences, um, a lot, a lot more travel, a lot more. I mean, I, I, our son just had his sixth birthday. I wish half of what he got was, was more of a, um, you know, experience with somebody as opposed to, to a toy, because those are the things that, that, that matter and that, that stick. Um, that stick. I mean, my kids, the, what they remember is the vacations we went on. They don't, you know, they've asked me for, to buy them a lot of stuff, but the, that, you know, I'm, I get a thank you when, when we first, when they first get it, but then, you know, three months down the road, they still remember the vacations, but they don't really remember that, you know, paying for that. Yeah. So. And, you, and you're, and you're giving them the gift of, of your time, right. um, time together. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's huge. So, Hey, advice for somebody starting out. I mean, look, I think there's a lot of fear with getting into, especially large scale, you know, real estate investing. Um, you know, so how do you get over that fear? How do you, have the mindset to go bigger? Well, it, it starts with knowing yourself and what you have to offer um, because you're not going to make a, a compelling case or, or move the needle uh, if you're not clear on, on that piece when you have conversations with folks. And then it's having, having conversations, as I said earlier, um, letting people get to know you and you getting to know um, people. Um, deals happen through and with other people. Uh, it's a people business. And if we haven't beaten it to death, um, <laughs> relationships, relationships, relationships. Yeah. And, you know, you said it before, these pe people come from all different types of industries. And I've seen people come from all different capital situations. Like some people think like, oh, you just have to be wealthy to get into it. Right. Well, that's not the case. There's, there's people that... Um, you know, look, if you have capital, it makes things easier, right? If, if you have a big network, that makes things easier. But it, whatever your value is, you can just keep asking people and telling people there, there are people of all different facets, all different age groups, all different business backgrounds that have been found a way to become successful. Um, and it's a matter of getting out there and telling people, you know, be truthful, you know, yeah, here's where, my where you can add that, that value to them. I mean, right. the more experienced you are, the more you're short on time. Right. Um, like Thursdays for me is a, is a busy, um, asset management call day. Uh, and if somebody else is short on, 
uh, you know, network and, and net worth, uh, they might have the time. So there, there, there are things that, that can be done provided, you know, you guys have a, a meeting of the minds and, and you, you have to put everything you, you, you can offer out there for people to know about it. Absolutely. So most people that become successful, I don't know, onlookers will say that they're an overnight success, right? But typically there are sacrifices that have, were made to lead up to that. So for you, what type of sacrifices did you make in order to get to where you so are today? I, I, wasn't, I wasn't an overnight success. It, it, it is a long-term business, but um, to, to me, the sacrifices were made before I got into the space and I was already in a strong financial situation investing in apartments passively because of, and then it grew, grew from there. Um, but the, uh, the commitment and I, uh, I had made was a regular one, once, twice a month, uh, in-person meetup. And I think, um, not that that's a sacrifice, but it, it, it was a time commitment, uh, and it wasn't convenient, uh, with, with two young kids. It was in the evenings and, and all that, but, um, but it was worth it because it was prioritizing that interaction, regular interaction with folks, because that's the other thing, whatever you do, you want to do it with a level of regularity that sets the tone where it's like, okay, this is, this is Darren. I know what to expect from him. I know that, um, that there's a podcast or that there's a, um, you know, consistency in, in, uh, in what you're, what you're putting out there. And that, and that consistency feeds that trust loop, which is, which is what you're trying to, uh, to build. Yeah. And it sounds like for, for you, um, the first thing you did was you, you invested passively, you know, and I think that that, it, you know, anybody looking to get in the space, that is a great place to start because you learn by, by doing that. You, you know, you see how the, the syndicator puts the deal together, how they communicate it to investors. You see how they do their monthly communication. And then Look, when I got into this space, I, I remember having a bunch of coffee meetings early on with syndicators. Like, is this real? Like, you know, are people really making this, this money? Is this real? And, and they were like, yes. But that, there's another level to that when all of a sudden you start investing your own money and you start seeing cash flow. And then all of a sudden the deal goes full cycle and you get paid back a great return that gives you a, a whole nother level of confidence in the asset class, you know, and in get, getting involved. So, you know, take that step to go out to meetup groups, to meet people, and then, you know, try to get into your first passive investment. And, and I think a lot of people um, start, start passively to get their, um, their feet wet. And um, if, if you don't have the full amount for the minimum, ask the, ask the sponsors, but pick a, a best of breed or, or sponsors that you, um, you've gotten to know and are interested in, in, um, I don't see seeing behind the curtain, but like Darren said, um, getting a, an idea of how the, how they do their communication and, and best practices, uh, because then it's, it's another learning opportunity. 
So do you just hear like that? All these, all these broker deals that you see and you get on their email list, every single one of them is a, is a learning opportunity for underwriting. Cause I get that, asked that question all the time. Well, what can I do next to, you know, sharpen the, the sword and, and get better? I was like the, the material is infinite out there. It's, it's a, just a matter of, um, going after it. Yeah, absolutely. So did you hear that tip that she just gave listeners? Look, if you, if you don't have the cap, most of these minimums on these multifamily, large syndication multifamily deals are anywhere from 50,000 to a hundred thousand. And so some people just think, oh, that's at, it's, you know, it's out of my reach. And, but she just said like, look, if you like a deal, if you like a syndicator, ask them, Hey, I've got 25,000. This is my first deal. Can I get in? And they may say no, right? But they may say yes. And, you know, I tell my kids that all the time. If you don't ask for something that you want, like you don't take a chance. Yeah, they might say no, but what if they say yes? So, hey. You've got got nothing to lose in asking. You've got nothing to lose. But, you know, some people just see the email that comes out and says. Don't email actually pick up the phone. That That's my other piece of advice is um, especially wealthy, older investors. I mean, people get texts and emails all the time. What they don't get is a phone conversation. And sometimes it can be a long one, but that long conversation could be the difference between a relationship with an investor and just another email address that, that you send things off to that doesn't amount to anything. Um, so taking the time for in-person and actually picking up the phone, being old school about it um, makes sense. Particularly with, a, with I don't want to say older, but, you know, I, I think I'm still in the millennial category, <laughs> believe it or not. I don't associate with anything, you know, that has to do with millennials, but, uh, but I, but the, the, whether it be the um, commodity trading company or the, um, the apartment business, I mean, Commodity trading, you use Yahoo, the instant messenger. I mean, you, you're always messaging, but the difference was made in the phone calls. Always, always. Yeah, I'm, I'm 52. I'm, I'm still old school. <laughs> but um, in any event, hey, you've accomplished so much. What's the next big stretch goal for you? It's to keep stretching, uh, looking at deals, underwriting deals in uh, the uh, Texas Triangle market. So I'm in I'm in DFW now. Moved from Houston last year, uh, so underwriting in in DFW, Houston, and San Antonio. Uh, I've got deals both in DFW and San Antonio, uh, and otherwise um, selling a 120 unit tenant in common deal. Uh, and looking for uh, a purchase uh, to roll those uh, funds into as a 1031 exchange this year. Fantastic. And then we're, and then we're taking off to Europe for two months. For two months? Yes. Two and that months. is a logi- logistics challenge in and of itself. Holy cow. So tell me about that. Like, are you, are you bopping around different places? Are you st- staying in Airbnbs? What are you, what are you doing? All of the above? No. Um, so I grew up in Geneva, Switzerland, and my dad lives there and has a place that's big enough for us to basically take over, which is what we're going to do. Uh, and then Geneva is central enough that we're going to 
jump off from there, take the high-speed train to Paris for a week. Uh, and there's plenty to do in Switzerland itself. Uh, and we're on the border with France. Uh, and I, I love Italy, but we're probably going to stay on the, on the Swiss side, Lugano or something like that. How do you do that with having nine deals and morning calls, morning calls. <laughs> so nothing's going to be in the middle of the night. Most of my calls are, are morning calls, uh, and everything's email. And then you get an international phone plan. Yeah. But that's, the, that's the difference. Like this business does afford you the opportunity to travel, to leverage other people. Um, but it takes time and it takes sacrifices and it takes building those relationships to get there. But now you're, you're taking two months and you're going to Europe with your family. That's fantastic. Hey, if, if listeners want to get to know you better, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, call or email. Um, you can share with them my, my phone number and then my email is my first initial last name at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, I will put that in the show notes. And um, Natalie, really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one. This girl is a very, very smart cookie. And um, I hope that we can work together in the future and um, look forward to seeing you at the next event. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thanks again for having me on and, uh, and also for creating this, um, this forum for, for listeners. Absolutely. Thanks, Natalie and listeners. Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 